This week on Writers Inc. They get half, they get into the store and then they have some things in their hand and they're like, oh, I need a basket. So all that sort of stuff, uh, love all that kind of thing. So those stores were built with couches and coffee shops to be a third place because the research said the longer, every minute they stay in that store, they're more likely to buy something. Um, my store has changed location several times in the near 20 years we've been open. And we've gotten smaller because we've seen it as, as less of a third place because of, again, social media. People aren't looking for third places as much. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hey, man, you got a, a somewhat new setup going on there. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, I, I've got a new toy. Um, okay, so I mentioned this a, a while back. There's a company called D10. Um, I think it's either D10.com or D10.us. But if, if you just go in and search, you'll find them. Um, and they've been making hardware for video conferencing for probably a decade, but primarily geared towards the corporate world. Um, you know, so big, giant boardroom, 100-inch televisions with video conferencing built in. Um, and this isn't like hokey, you know, like computer monitor stuff. Like you know, they've got like multiple 4K cameras, um, microphones, that kind of thing, like designed to deal with a room that's, you know, like 10 by 40 or, you know, a big conference table, that kind of thing. Um, but they obviously saw the trend of what was happening with the, the virus situation. Um, and they came up with something called the D10Me, which is what I'm on. Um, and I was lucky enough to get one a little bit early. I don't know when these things actually start shipping, but I, I got mine a couple of days ago. It's a 27-inch monitor that sits on my desk, and it, it can double as a, a secondary monitor, which is great because I had a second monitor before. Um, but it's got three 4K cameras up in the top, um, and it's got, I think it said eight microphones. Um, so if I sound different, that's why. We wanted to kind of test this out and, and see what it's like because normally I use a, a Shure microphone, which is a you know professional studio-grade quality thing it's it's what joe rogan uses for his podcast um this time i'm literally just sitting at my desk no headphones on i'm using whatever is built into this hardware just to see what what it sounds like um, from a convenience standpoint it's awesome um, because you've got a secondary monitor on your desk all this hardware is built in so i don't have my headphones i don't have cameras like all this other crap that's normally cluttering up my, my workspace is gone um and it you know keeps my calendar on a nice little display uh, and you do a three finger swipe if you want to go back and forth between Zoom and your dual monitor situation. Or if you get a Zoom call or a Zoom meeting that pops up you know, while you're using it as a monitor, uh, it gives you a little heads up type display so you can switch over. Um, so you know, very cool technology. Um, aside from that, I, I saw a press release where Zoom is actually licensing their, their software to a lot of companies, um, which is going to be very cool. So like I've got a Facebook portal. I think I'm the only person in the country that actually bought one of those. <laughs> um, I, I bought like five of them. Um, it's like a little device that attaches to your TV. And I sent them off to all our family last year for Christmas. I'm like, this is going to be so great. We'll be able to video conference with the whole family. And it'll be like, we're all in one big room. And I, I'm the only one, I think, who actually took it out of the box and plugged it into a TV. Oh, no. None of our relatives bothered. Um, but so Zoom is, is licensing this software to Portal. One of the cool things about Portal is it actually followed you around the room, like one of their cameras. So, you know, if you had it on your kitchen counter and you walked around, the camera actually followed you, which was neat. Um, so now that device will have Zoom. Um, and the Amazon Echo devices, uh, the Echo Show, which has a built-in display, will also have Zoom. Um, so they're basically reaching out to anybody that's got any kind of display with the microphone and camera and licensing their hardware. So they're basically doing what Skype should have done like 15 years ago. Right. And the reason why, like, I don't get why Skype didn't do all this. Like, we could be, you know, video phone calls should be the norm right now, but they're, you know, they're still not. You know, they they don't feel as weird as they did, you know, a year ago, becoming more mainstream. But, um, anyways, from a technology standpoint, I absolutely love this. I've been doing so many interviews overseas and just, you know, just different things on Zoom where I would normally travel. Um, this is just so convenient. Um, and the display is fantastic. My 20 inch, your 27 inch monitors is great. Nice. How does it, uh, how does it interface with your Zoom account, or is it a, is it a Wi-Fi device? 
Uh, it can use Wi-Fi. It's got a, a regular Cat5 thing in the back. So I, I plugged into my network because I wanted it to be wired. Yeah. Um, when you do the initial setup, uh, it's very similar to setting up like a Netflix account on you know, like a Roku box where you have to go to a web page and you type in an authorization code. Um, so I had to do that. And then it linked it to my Zoom account. Um, I'm still on the free Zoom account, so I, I've got very limited use of it. I'm probably going to upgrade because this device is capable of making phone calls and things like that. Um, so if I can have a dedicated phone number for business, that would be great because I'm I'm always giving out my cell phone number and, and it tends to get to a lot of people that really shouldn't have it. <laughs> but I got changing cell phones you know, like all the time, which just, you know, for the people that are supposed to have it, that just makes it inconvenient. Um, so this way, I think I'll be able to use like a business phone number through Zoom that I can just change out, you know, when I start getting the random phone calls from places that aren't supposed to be calling me, um, you know, and it's time to make that change. So. Um, there's that. Um, and so we'll see. Uh, the, the calendar integration is a little weird because I, I didn't see anything on Zoom for an iOS integration. Um, it's got Google Calendar. It had Exchange um, and Microsoft uh, 365 or whatever they're calling it these days. Uh, but there was nothing for iOS. Um, there was one that interfaced with the phone version. Um, so I, I tried that right before we got on, and I'm not sure if they all synced up. Uh, but you and I played with it a little bit earlier today. I just wanted to see if, like, this particular meeting – Know, if it would show up on my calendar and, and it, it didn't. So, you know, we haven't been able to figure out how to make that happen, but yeah, you know, a lot of moving parts and, you know, it's, it's new technology. I think, you know, with the way the world is right now, I think it's going to be forced to become a mainstream thing. These improvements I think are going to be forced on everybody as well. And the more convenient they can make it, the, the faster it's going to get adopted. So very exciting stuff. I have to wonder if there's any behind the scenes uh, licensing going on between zoom and like uh uh, television manufacturers like you know Samsung or you know putting putting a card into a television um, or building the hardware capabilities like that seems to be a no-brainer because you know, everyone's pretty much got a TV in a in a main room somewhere. Yeah, and, and that's where it really needs to go. I mean, because you know, like I said, I, I mailed the Facebook portal thing to every family member, um, and it's not a difficult setup. I mean, it's just an HDMI plug, and then you, you, know, you plug in the device, and then it walk you through maybe a minute worth of setup instructions. But you know, that's still it's it's too much. You know, it's too much of an inconvenience, and it's it's scary for people that aren't you know used to that. Um, so yeah, if it's built into the TV, I think that would be huge. Uh, I do know there's some uh, TVs coming out now that have uh, Amazon Echo built in. Um, so I'm guessing that they're putting a camera in those as well, but I haven't looked at the specs yet, but I, I think that's where it's going to go because I think in the end, I think a lot of people kind of want what I had touched on, you know, Christmas rolls around or Thanksgiving, you know, you want to be able to just, you know, log in the family, have everybody all in, in one place uh, without necessarily having to, to travel because nobody likes to, to <laughs> who, who really likes to travel for Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know? <laughs> uh, I yeah. John Candy, maybe. I, I don't know. That, that's probably about it. <laughs> That kind of segues into what I was going to talk about next, um, film stuff. Um, yeah. I, I mentioned this to you. I, I just had another option. Nice. Um, which, yeah, it's the second book that I worked on with James Patterson. It's called The Noise. Um, it's his very first horror novel that we wrote. Um, that got scooped up by a company called E1. Um, and there, there's quite a few people attached to it, but I, I don't think they've actually announced any of them yet, so I can't really go into that. But that, that was very good news, and it kind of um, balanced out some of the other stuff that I heard because I, I saw that Wonder Woman 1984 got pushed back again like it was supposed to come out um i think three times now like i've lost track of how many times they pushed it back um the new james bond is now 2021 um and i saw an interview with the director of wonder woman and she's saying that this could be the end of movie theaters um at least as we know it um and i, I did notice one of our local ones here up in portsmouth is, is shuttered now like they yeah, they tried to reopen about a month and a half ago um, I'm guessing, you know, they just didn't have the business on, but now it's like officially closed. Like there's a you know, building for lease sign on the door. So it's gone. Um, so I'm sure that kind of thing is, is happening everywhere. Um, and, and Hollywood in general is in limbo. I, I just talked to a friend of mine and a producer out there. Um, she's got a couple shows that she was working on. Everything is, is at a standstill. They're just trying to figure out how to finish up what they, they started. Um, James Patterson had another production that was um, in the works with Showtime. And I think last time I talked to him, they were like four or five episodes in. Uh, it's based on the book that he wrote with Bill Clinton uh, called The President is Missing. Um, so they had finished episodes in the can, but they just announced yesterday that they're, they're going to pull the plug on it. They're not going to finish it. Wow. Um, but new stuff is coming out, too. I just saw an email this morning saying their uh, Showtime ordered Dexter. There's a limited series of Dexter coming out next year. So they're trying to figure out you know ways to keep things going. But I think they're they're being forced to stay away from anything that's got a large scale production. So anything with big crowd scenes. Um, anything like that that's difficult to film, those are kind of getting pushed to the background as they try to find 
things with with limited cast you know stuff that they can film you know either on a sound stage somewhere or with you know two three four or five people in a room together instead of a hundred uh, interesting to see where, where that kind of thing is going um and along the same lines i, I got an email from a, a former mentoring student of mine um and i'm just going to touch on this on the podcast just because I, I get this question quite a bit um she's got a book that she indie published um and a, a producer reached out to her completely out of the blue from a, a company in canada um, asking if she would be interested in licensing and possibly pursuing a foreign rights deal for, for a film production or a TV show. Um, it all sounds great, um, but I told her the same thing that I always tell everybody else. If you get that kind of offer, go out and get a film agent um, to, to negotiate it. Don't, don't sign anything. Don't agree to anything. Um, a lot of these companies will take advantage of, of people. And I'm not saying that they're all bad, but there are obviously bad apples out there. Um, some of them will make you work for free, um, you know, expect you to create a script or, you know, help you to or basically ask you to develop a program that they just kind of piggyback on. Um, so if it's a legit company that's asking this question and you don't have to make that determination, if, if you reach out to a film author and you say, hey, so-and-so contacted me, they're interested in my book, this is what they want to do. If it's a legit deal, that film agent is going to sign it. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to pass up a, you know, a paycheck that's that's more or less, you know, right there in their hand. Right. Um, it's not a legit deal. They're going to tell you. So put put them in the middle of it. Um, and, and the contracts themselves are, are nightmares. So like you wouldn't want to navigate those waters on your own anyway. Like a contract with a regular agent is maybe two or three pages with a publisher. It's maybe 10 to 20 pages for a film and TV deal. It's like it's a couple inches thick. You know, it's, it's 300 pages, 400 pages. And, and they're insane. And you, you don't want to have to try to, to navigate those waters. So, so go out there and get a film agent. What would be the difference between getting a film agent in that situation or like an entertainment lawyer? I actually have both. Um, and, and they work hand in hand with each other. So I, I've got a couple agents. I've got my regular literary agent who does domestic stuff. So U.S., U, uh, U.K., Canada. Um, then I've got a foreign co-agent, which is somebody that my literary agent works with on a regular basis. And she handles all my foreign publishing rights. And then I also have the film and TV agent that does nothing but that. And then I've got the, the entertainment lawyer uh, who actually takes a percentage of my film and TV deals rather than me paying him by the hour. So he takes a, a percentage of whatever money comes in on those and he handles all the negotiations on it. Um, so for the most part, the, the various agents are able to pick apart the agreements and the contracts because they've seen them so many times. They know what to look for and, and what, you know, they know the red flags. They know what's OK. Um, but he goes through as a final pass and he's part of the negotiation process to make sure everything you, you want is in there, uh, and there and make sure there's nothing in there that you don't want. Um, little things that kind of slip by. Like for me personally, I, I always like to make sure there's going to be a title card that says based on the novel by J.D. Barker. Um, that's huge for me. Um, and, and they know that that's big for the author. So they kind of hold it over your head like a carrot. They say, well, we're not going to give you that unless you do this, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, uh, merchandising is another big deal that a lot of people don't think about. Um, you know, I think we've talked about David Morrell before. I, I know him pretty well. And, and he gave up the merchancy rights for Rambo. You know, he, he didn't know any better. I mean, when, you know, it took 10 years for them to make a first blood movie um, for the you know, very first Rambo movie. Um, so nobody knew where it was going to go, but, you know, it obviously went there. So a lot of money was left on the table that he could have had a piece of. Um, and there, there's a lot of stories like that. So and those, you know, there's only a handful of really good entertainment lawyers and they they know all those stories. So they know what to watch for. Excellent. Well, that's uh, that's really useful information. Thanks for sharing that. That's it. That's all I've got in my notes. <laughs> What's going on with you? Uh, I am uh, going through, I, I'm just going to call it, uh, I, I've decided to call it Darwin's Challenge just for now because I'm tired of saying that manuscript. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so Darwin's Challenge is what I'm working on and uh, I'm making my way through the first act and this is the this is the revision I'm doing on the dialogue only draft and I'm going in and adding the exposition and it is so enjoyable. Like I just feel this tremendous weight off my shoulders that the dialogue is kind of in place and now I can kind of write around it. And, uh, and, and the dialogue gives me so much more context. And what I'm finding, I'm keeping track of the amount of words per scene that, were, that was dialogue only and then I'm, I'm writing it and then I'm, and then I'm tracking how many total words it is so that I kind of know what the difference is. And I'm finding I need so few, um, so, so many less words when I focused on the dialogue first, like there's just so much I don't have to say, uh, which has really been a revelation for me. Cool. Uh, yeah, I think it's very similar to working with an outline. I mean, that's that's one of the benefits of that. Like you don't have the added pressure of being a discovery writer or a pantser where you're trying to figure out what you're going to do the next day. You know, the story is already laid out. 
Um, and with that pressure gone, it allows you to focus on, on those little minute details a little bit closer than you probably would have. Uh, and it does feel far less stressful, I, I think, that way. So it's, it's, it's a give or take. I mean, I, I love the, the pantsy. Yeah, I, I love doing that. But you know, at the same time, that this is a nice way to write a book, too. So oh, cool. I'm yeah. glad it's working out for you. Yeah, it's good. I mean, and, uh, you know, I, I obviously plotted it, but you could pants uh, a dialogue only first draft. And then in revision, you'd have the same experience. You know, it's just... Uh, what's really interesting to me is like, I'm realizing how much telling I've done in my, in my writing because uh, you know, I haven't written like this before and now I'm, I'm reading over the dialogue and I'm like, I don't really have to say anything there because I don't, I don't have to tell the reader anything because the dialogue shows it. And that's, that's been great to see. Well, the dialogue forces you to stay in the moment. Yeah. You know, so so there is a, a, yeah. So passive voice and those kind of things kind of go away just there by, by design. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yep. Chug along on that. It's been fun though. All right. Who do we have on this week? We have, uh, your, well, I guess he's your neighbor sort of, he's not the one who's, uh, who's calling the city on you and getting and getting lawyers, but, uh, he's sort of a neighbor. It's Tom Holbrook. Okay. River run books. Um, yeah, great, great guy. Um, it's been, I think that bookstore has been around for what, 20 some years. Something I'm sure like that. Mm-hmm. Interview. And it's because he's able to pivot you know, and adapt to, to what's happening out there. He's, he's got a really keen eye for, you know, where the industry's been and where it's going and, you know, manages to, to stay right on the edge of that and keep himself, keep himself relevant in a very difficult market. Yeah. And this is a, for our, our loyal listeners, this is going to be a bit of a different interview. Uh, it just so happened that, you know, we recorded this interview in January, February, maybe. And I was, when I looked at the production schedule and saw this was coming up, I reached back out to Tom and I said, you know, Hey, if you can do this, I know it's last minute, but I would love to hop on with you for 10 or 15 minutes and talk about what's changed since we last spoke, which is a little bit. Uh, and I said, I'll kind of tack it on to the end. Um, and he was kind enough to do that. So it's, um, it's a, it's an interesting interview in that the, the whole first part happens before the pandemic. And then Tom and I, uh, talked just yesterday about sort of what's changed. And I don't think it's going to surprise anyone, but it's a really interesting contrast between, you know, um, what, where his bookstore was then and where it is now, because I think out of all of our guests, you know, most writers have their personal lives, have had their personal lives affected by this. But um, I think for Tom, you know, his, his business is in an industry that has really been been hit hard by this. And so I think kind of hearing his perspective is going to be very enlightening for folks. Yeah, it's crazy how fast everything has changed. Like I didn't, I didn't realize that I just read through a, uh, what's called a final pass on a book that I, I wrapped up um, a few months ago. And I always write an author's note at the end. And in the author's note, and this was January, I, I wrote where we stood from a virus standpoint. Um, and it was something like 50,000 people infected worldwide. Um, you know, wow. at, at the time, like it doesn't seem that long ago. Um, but yeah, those numbers are obviously through the roof now. And it's, it's crazy because when I sat down and wrote that, you know, I kind of wrote it in a way, you know, cause I know the book's not going to come out till next year. So I kind of presented it that way to the reader. You know, this is where we were, you know, in January, you all already know where, where, you know, where we go after this, like that kind of scenario. But it's crazy to think that it's, it's changed that much. Yeah. So, all right, well, let's, let's give them a listen on Todd Holbrook. All right, Tom, I thought a good place for us to start is to talk about uh, the challenges of running a bookstore because you are the first guest on Writers, Inc. who is the owner of a bookstore. So tell us a little bit about that and what kind of challenges you face. Yeah, that's great. You guys are really covering all aspects of the industry. And oddly, I seem to have a foot in many different parts of the industry. Yes, so it's which we're going to talk, talk about. about. Absolutely. Uh, talk about everything. Uh, I started selling books uh, in 1995 at Borders um, in Ann Arbor when the Borders in Ann Arbor was this huge, beautiful, amazing bookstore. And uh, not long after that, I was managing a a mall store, which is the exact opposite experience. (laughs) And it's a lot like being a junior high principal where there are people above you telling you what you need to be doing. And there's people below you complaining about what you need to be doing. Uh, and very much wanted to, to become an indie and um, moved back, moved to New Hampshire. I grew up in Maine. Uh, when my wife got out of law school, uh, we decided to come here and hooked up with some other uh, guys who owned an indie bookstore in New Hampshire and one in Massachusetts and 
as partners, we opened one in Portsmouth and that was in 2002. Uh, and at that time, Barnes and Noble was the challenge. Oh, right. Uh, and then before long, Amazon was the challenge. And then before long, eBooks were the challenge and eBooks were a big challenge. They took about 30 to 40% of the industry. Wow. Almost overnight within a period of 18 months, to two years. Uh, but now it's not even eBooks. So now the phone is, is the enemy. Uh, the Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, all of those, uh, the statistics of the number of hours people are spending looking at their phone and they're reading, but they're reading tiny little snippets. So long form narrative reading has really been on the skids for the last five to 10 years. And it's a skill that we're going to have a hard time getting back when we want it back. So I think one of the, you know, most independent bookstores are trying to preserve that idea that that this kind of reading is important. Uh, but the big challenge is, is the amount of time that people spend staring at their phone. I do it. I'm in line at the post office and I'm looking at my phone. I'm like, can I not just stand still for five minutes and think about something? So it's, um, and if I have a hard time doing it and I'm hyper aware of the problem, how can you blame people who, uh, who get distracted constantly? So how does how does audio books how do audio books fit into this challenging time for bookstores or do they? Well, it's hard because we used to sell audio books when they came on cassettes or, or CDs, uh, but the price different differential is is quite large. So an audio book might cost forty forty five dollars on CD um, and fifteen dollars as a paperback, uh, and so most people who are listening audio are are now using audible or overdrive or hoopla from the library or, or something like that. Uh, I think most booksellers believe that all reading is good reading um, and all, or listening as the case may be. Um, it, most of us are not going to be hurt if you were sourcing reading from multiple places. Uh, it's the lack of reading that is going to hurt everybody, including bookstores. And audio is just a way for us to, to consume more story. Uh, I'm not a huge audio fan. My 11 year old is an enormous audio fan. I, I do podcasts. Uh, Same here. Isn't um, that weird? I can't get into fiction audio as much as I do podcasts. Um, well, for me, it's not taking the place of fiction. It's taking the place of listening or looking at news, which is just so 24 hour news cycle crazy. Uh, so I listen to political podcasts that are once or twice a week that condense that information in a thoughtful way. And then I listen to all of the indie book industry stuff. So I listen to you and JD and you and Zach, and I love you and Rachel. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> love that show. I listen to Joanna and to Mark Dawson and uh, to Brian Cohen. And I listen to them at 1.5 speed when I'm, when I'm at the gym or we're taking my walks, which is I think how a lot of people are consuming audio. And it's hard to read a book when you're walking. On an even sidewalk, so, dangerous too. Um, audio is going to be huge. It's it it's already starting to get huge, but it's, it's going to be really big. I don't know where bookstores fit into that because right now it's it's difficult for us. Uh, some of our e-commerce solutions are incorporating audio, uh, which is great. So in other words, if you go to my store's website, um, hopefully in the future audio will be a, a choice and. Uh, so people can buy the digital download. So those solutions are coming, but in terms of in the physical store, there's we I don't sell any audiobooks in the physical store anymore because they're just too expensive to stock and who knows what people want. So. Well, uh, clearly you've done a good job of of staying relevant and uh, and staying in business and and given <laughs> this this changing landscape, what are the nature what's the nature of the interactions people are having with local bookstores these days what what are you providing that that maybe they can't get by shopping on amazon oh man i i'm gonna i want to put my best happy face on because a lot of it a lot of it is a slow slide to doom just oh, to no. be <laughs> honest and again um I, I keep coming back to this but it's more about reading and readership than it is about retail. Um, to give you a, a, a stunning example with ebooks, we thought people would be paper book readers or they'd be ebook readers. And we were bracing for that loss of the ebook readers. And, and there was quite a bit. But what I see now is uh, 
I see people making format decisions based on convenience because we are Americans and we cannot wait. So customer comes into the store and says, you know, do you have a copy of The Handmaid's Tale? And, and if I do, they will buy a $15 paperback of The Handmaid's Tale or a $10 used book or, or whatever. If I don't, and I say, can I order that for you? They say, no, I'll just download the ebook. So they're, they're flipping uh, because they have to have it right now. Uh, the other change you see there, I think, is um, we see less browsers and more people coming in looking for a specific title. And I, I attribute that to, to um, reading decline also. If you read 50, 60 books a year, you're way more willing to take a chance on a title that looked cool, that had maybe had a staff pick bookmark in it, or was on a table and you'd never heard of it before, but you're like, oh, that looks cool. If you read four books a year, you want the one that Oprah tells you is great or your sister tells you is great. Uh, and uh, you want that to be a great book. So uh, we used to have tables full of books on display and now we lean heavily on our staff picks and we make sure we have the books that we know people are looking for. Uh, so that's changed a bit. Um, the, and it changes, I think, in different parts of the country. So I'm in Portsmouth, which is a town of 20,000 and serves maybe 40,000 people. So I can't rely on the kooky whale readers. Uh, I still have them. I still have a lot of them. But, but I have to have the books that people want who are on vacation, who are passing through or whatever. You're in Cleveland. There's probably, I think there's at least a dozen independent bookstores in, in Cleveland. Something like that. And there's just more people. <laughs> so I think it's a bit easier if you're, you're in a city, uh, which is funny because a few years ago, those of us in small towns, especially in New England, had it easier competing against Barnes & Noble because there was no real estate that Barnes & Noble could come in and take. In Portsmouth, there's not much bigger than 3,000 square feet for a storefront. And it's all historically protected, so you can't rip buildings down and, and build a big, big store. Not the way Home now Depot seeing, put out the hardware stores, right? Exactly. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they're out at the mall, but people make that choice between downtown and, and the mall, I think. Uh, so I think the cities, in some ways, you're seeing independent bookstores like in Brooklyn doing really, really well. Uh, there's a large concentration of people there who, who are, you know, what what we call whale readers, who who read a ton of books and. Uh, and like to hold them in their hands. Uh, people are opening bookstores all the time. So there's an optimism in the industry. Uh, I'm not sure how that equates to what the long-term future is, but it's great that it's still alive as a concept. People never stop. I think the bookstores who are doing well all do something else also. Um, we publish books, which we can get into, uh, but some stores do a lot of card and gift and some stores have a coffee shop or a bar. Some stores do a ton of events, uh, but most stores aren't relying just on book sale profits to, to keep themselves alive. They're all doing something else. Uh, so Yeah, I, I see that. I mean, uh, last month we were in California for Authors on a Train, and I got to visit uh, City Lights in San Francisco. And uh, it's some of those bookstores, I don't know if yours is like this, they're almost becoming the third place instead of Starbucks or instead of the coffee shop? Or are you seeing patrons come in uh, more for the experience or to socialize uh, in addition to the books? Uh, no, I feel like we used to be the third place before Starbucks came along. I mean, bookstores <laughs> used to be the third place. And, and the rise of Borders really keyed in on that. I remember reading, when I first became a manager at Borders, reading Paco Underhill, I don't know if you know, um, he wrote a book called uh, Why We Buy that was all about, you You would love it because it just total delves into the psycho of like, if the aisles are too thin, oh. <laughs> women will leave if somebody, you know, because they don't like people brushing by them. They don't feel comfortable. Um, things like put your handle baskets in the middle of the store because no one walks into the store thinking, I'm going to buy a whole lot of crap they get half they get into the store and then they have some things in their hand and they're like, Oh, I need a basket. So all that sort of stuff, uh, love all that kind of thing. So those stores were built with couches and coffee shops to be a third place because the research said the longer every minute they stay in that store, they're more likely to buy something. Um, 
my store has changed location several times in the near 20 years we've been open. And we've gotten smaller because we've seen it as, as less of a third place because of, again, social media. People aren't looking for third places as much. Um, or if they are, they want ones with alcohol, <laughs> which, which some bookstores do. Right. Um, I don't. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I think libraries are becoming the libraries have always been a third place, but they have really stepped up. Our library in this in Portsmouth is unbelievable. They have 3D printers, they have hundreds of clubs going on, they teach classes in almost anything you could want. Um, their children's books, you know, librarians are amazing. So, um, again, some some bookstores are are that for their community. I was just talking to some nice people who wandered into the store on their way back to Maine where they're opening a bookstore in uh, Belfast, which is way smaller than Portsmouth. And they're going to be the third place for that town because there's nothing else going on. Um, where I live in Portsmouth, it's like the arts cultural center for the seacoast. So there's so much going on that um, there, there's just a lot of options for people. And part of staying in business for a long time is is trying to do the right thing at the right time. We used to do a ton of events. We used to do two to three events a year. Uh, so, you know, I've put on well over a thousand events in my, in my career and I do very few now. I do events with local people that everybody knows and I do events with famous people. And that stinks because we used to do a lot of, well, we used to do a lot of events with mid-list authors. We'd read a book that we'd like, we'd call up a publisher and say, hey, can, you know, so-and-so, come and uh and if it was near their tour they'd come and it would and we would send out to our email list and we get 30 or 40 people now if we do that for someone that nobody knows we get four or five people and it's really just it's discouraging but again there's so much so many options for people that um they want the thing that they know is going to be great and so when we bring somebody huge to town lots of people come out um or if it's somebody that everybody in town knows they come out, but the in-between is tough. Yeah. Which is now, and I should say that we we had a great event with Stephen King, because I understand Stephen King has to be mentioned in every interview. I think so. I think that's a requirement <laughs> of, JD said, I'm only doing this podcast if you mention Stephen King every episode. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was great. He was, everything they say about him is, is true. Super nice guy. He's just sat and signed and talked about the Red Sox. Um, and um, his son, Joe, lives not too far away. So we've done a lot of stuff with Joe, who's now, I haven't seen Lock and Key yet, but that's pretty great that that's finally hitting Netflix. Have you watched it? No, I, it's in my queue, but I haven't started it, it yet. It just dropped and the preview looks pretty great. But. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. I, I do want to, uh, I want to shift gears and talk about your press. But before we do that, I wanted to ask about you specifically and if you have a daily routine or a morning routine, and if you do, what is it? What does it look like? I have a middle schooler. Um, pretty calm as middle schoolers go. <laughs> so my daily routine is, uh, is my wife gets up first and she gets ready for work. She's got a nine to five job. And um, I get my daughter up and fed and get lunch made. And then I, we go down, we park down near her school and then I walk to the store and then I work furiously from nine to two because then I have to go pick her up from school. Um, and so I have a six day week because that's the only way that I can manage to get out that early. Uh, when I get to the store, I try a very, very hard a, a tip. I can't remember where I picked up this tip, but I try very hard not to open my email for the first hour. Um, and I tend to get more done in that first hour than I get in the next three. Uh, because <laughs> once you open your email, everything is, is reacting. Everything's a reaction. So um, I place orders for books that need to be ordered. I answer emails. I pack and ship orders that came in online. Uh, we're both new and used books. So people are sometimes hunting down something that we, that we happen to have. Um, I do this all at the front counter where I'm, waiting on people. And then um, my first staff member comes in at noon. And then for the next two hours, I huddle in my office and do publishing stuff as much as I can. And then I, I do a lot at home at night. 
I think most small business owners do. It's a bit like being a teacher. You think, oh, the you know, it's these hours, but there's a lot more. There's a lot more hours to it. Well, so true, right? I mean, when it's your livelihood on the line and and you got to pay the bills, uh, sometimes you yeah, you can't just clock out and go home and forget about it. No. And I have a real, I have a real tendency to um, try to, to to skip from thing to thing to thing, thinking that it's an emergency. And I try not to try. I try to block time, but it's very, very hard when people call you up and you know say, uh, "Well, you know, I need you to pay this bill," and then you got to go find the bill wherever you buried it, or um, you know, I need events for school and here's the 35 different titles that I need three copies of. Well, that's a, you know, that's an hour job to get that order done. Uh, and you just don't know what's going to come at you. Um, I don't think we mentioned it, but I've also written some books and um, I'm on a break right now from new year's to, to May. So the conference is going to be my thing where I just had to stop because I couldn't serve both masters. I was getting too far behind in work. Uh, but I started that because none of the authors we worked with had written more than one or two books. And I very much wanted to, uh, AMS has changed so much that you really need a longer series. So I'm like, I'll just write one. <laughs> and so, Sounds simple enough, right, Tom? They're, they're only they're 55 or 60,000 words, so it's not that bad. Um, but uh, I just use them as a guinea pig for like, want to try book club ads? throw my own, throw my own money at it rather than clients money. So, uh, so yes, I try to be, I try to be organized, but uh, it's so hard not to be scattered when, when you do so many other things. I also don't ask me why, but I also uh, buy, sell and repair manual typewriters. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Which was another fluke thing, but um, it gives the people remember that about the store the store with the typewriter. Oh yeah. I could see that. There's like mm-hmm. 10 or 12 on sale at any given time. And you might, you know, I might be at the counter, like pulling one apart or whatever. And there's typewriters out for people to play with. And they love that. Kids love that. Hey, I don't think you got to mention the name of your store. You haven't talked, you haven't said it yet. Oh, it's, it's River Run Bookstore, um, which I joke is as far, River Run is as far into Finnegan's Wake as I got. <laughs> um, it's the first word. And, um, but nowadays people keep asking me if it's from Game of Thrones, because apparently there's a River Run reference in Game of Thrones. And I say, sure, why not? <laughs> but, that works. Um, but I was an English major in college and loved Joyce. Um, and this, everything in this town is named like Atlantic such and such or Seaport such and such or Portsmouth something something. So um, at the time, we were just trying to think of something that was maybe evocative of, of water and the ocean and the river because we're right. There's a big river that runs right. Uh, it's, it's actually the border between New Hampshire and Maine um, called the Piscataqua. And um, so that's where River Run came from. That's a perfect segue into Piscata, Piscataqua Press. So yes, let's talk so, about that. It's so hard to say because we only want people who are really dedicated to uh <laughs> to try it I love uh, that. scatico press is uh what i call assisted self-publishing you could call it vanity press but there's such a stigma on vanity press uh but that's actually why we started it so say you live in portsmouth and you've self-published a book you would bring it to me and ask me to sell it because everybody does so i have about 250 books in the store not piscatico press books but just self-published books um and consistently those books were either ungodly ugly (laughs) or the person had paid like $10,000 for it uh, and was never going to get their money back. Or someone would come in and say, "Um, my dad passed away and I'm cleaning out the house and he published a book in 1980 and there's still 850 copies in the garage. What should I do with them? And (laughs) nothing, there's nothing you can do. Um, And, um, so about five or six years ago, we looked at the technology and with, with uh, Lightning Source, which is Ingram, same as Ingram Spark, and it was like, you know, we, we can do this. Um, and so we started offering a very simple package, which is we still have the same very simple package. But um, basically, you know, 
we edit the book, we create a cover or hire out for a cover depending on what it needs. Um, we do the interior layout, we do the ebook, we publish the book, we do all the admin and we try to get it to sell and we do it for a very reasonable price. Um, which makes me laugh when, when I hear people hammer on vanity press because uh, it's like, well, you're an indie, do you hire a cover designer? And they say, yeah. And it's like, how dare you pay to have a cover? <laughs> it's the same as how dare you pay to have someone publish your book. I know where it comes from. It comes from the number of people who are scamming out there. Yeah, the predators. Reason, the reason there's so many predators is because there are so many people who want their book published. Just so many people. And you know, we've done about 250 books in the last six years. And half of them easily were people who knew they were never going to get their money back, even though their investment was you know, a couple thousand dollars. And they were cool with that. And you know, in my head, it's all about transparency. So when I deal with someone, I'm like, this is what's going to happen. And a lot of people can't hear you. They don't want to hear you. And I try my best, but I still have the people who say, okay, but how do we get it into Barnes and Noble? And I'm like, you don't want to be in Barnes and Noble. <laughs> what, what if Barnes and Noble orders five copies of your book for all 500 stores? You've got to print 2,500 books and you're going to get 2,200 of them back in six months. You don't want that. <laughs> so, um, so we're about half books for people who have always wanted a book. And some of these people, you know, they're 80, 82 years old, there's no way that they could go on Readsy and choose an editor and choose a cover. So, so we're, we're a concierge, basically. We, make, we do all that for them. And then there's people who, you know, really hope to have a book that, that people read and get out there. And, um, but they're not the kind of person who could figure out BookBub ads on their own or figure out how to, you know, apply to FreeBooksy and ENT and Robin Reads and, go, you know, they wouldn't even know where to start. Um, and because I'm crappy at selling greeting cards and stuff like that, it made a great side business for, for the bookstore. Uh, I'm not sure the bookstore would still be there if, if the publishing income over the past four or five years hadn't helped us out, especially in the winter. So we're, we're a tourist town. It gets really quiet, uh, between January and May. Whereas I like to tell people if I owe you money at new year's, I'm going to owe you money at Mother's Day too. <laughs> <laughs> those those months are rough, and then once you get to the summer, it's it's a lot, uh, it's a lot better. But that's how I got into publishing, and that's how I got into writing, and um, and it's amazing to have a foot in both worlds because they're completely disconnected. I think the the major publishers are so unaware of what's happening in the indie world that it's that it's mind numbing. I mean, in my mind, they are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, yeah, that, that, that could be a, a whole nother podcast episode there. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really amazing. Um, and it's frustrating because I was talking with JD about this the other day, actually, is because no one has figured out a way to effectively sell indie books in independent bookstores. And it's a shame because we are both indies. I mean, yes, you say indie bookstore and indie pub, but it, but we really are of the same spirit, the same sort of scrappy, do-it-yourself bootstrap spirit, much more than independent bookstores and Random House, you know? Um, but the biggest hindrance is the, um, the cost of author copies is high enough that it makes no way for the author to make money because a bookstore wants a 40% discount. We do a 70-30 split at River Run just because we know how hard it is for indie bookstores, but still. Um, so, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm interested in people like Mark Dawson who are thinking about making their own little publishing companies where the author gets more like a 50-50 split with the publisher. Uh, that kind of thing would, would help a lot. But from a small business standpoint, um, you don't want 5,000 different vendors. Right. So, you know, when you're buying from an independent author, they're a whole new vendor. You've got to have paperwork for them. You have to pay them. You have to keep track of the book. They're going to call you every four days to see if any copies of the book have sold. Um, not every four days, but they're going to call you a lot. And when you times that by 300 or 400 for number of books in the store, 
it's a lot. So it would be great if there was some sort of some sort of uh, distributor who who sought out indie books and somehow made it work. But I don't know how it works yet. Well, this is a this is a great sort of natural way to come full circle, and I think it's going to build upon what you just mentioned because I I always like to kind of finish off the interviews by asking our guests, you know, where do you think the publishing industry is headed? Where's, what's the future look like? And I know, you know, we touched upon a little bit in the beginning and, and just now, but uh, you know, how do you, how do you put a bow on that and and sort of tell us what what your thoughts are in the future? About 10 years ago, uh, Garrison Keillor came to uh, ABA with the big book expo in New York. And he, really made people mad by saying the future of publishing is 50,000 people with an authorship of two, most of whom are their parents. (laughs) But he was not wrong. I mean, the great thing is in this day and age, anybody can publish a book. And the terrible thing is in this day and age, anybody can publish a book. The white noise is just getting exponentially larger and larger. Small bookstores are curators for that white noise, and that's for better or worse. I mean, in some ways that makes us snobs, in other ways that makes us champions of culture. Uh, And I think there's a place there for indie booksellers, but it's very local. Um, I generally tell people when they call, when someone calls up and says, I just self-published a book I'd like you to carry. I say, do you live in town or is the book about town? Because that's what's gonna do well in my store for a book that is not from Random House, that is not going to show up in the New York Times book review. Um, And, um, you know, I know authors who go up and down the coast of Maine and New Hampshire stopping at bookstores and and consigning copies of their books. And obviously they're retired. You know, they don't don't have a day job. (laughs) And, you know, my advice to them, I'm sure your advice would be the same, which is you can make more money with your butt in your chair putting out more books and running some ads. Um, but that's what they like to do. Um, so I think the future of the big publishers is more consolidation and more reliance on big titles, um, which is a shame because uh, it used to be Random House would publish three or four books by an author and they would tank before they would cut that author loose. I mean, John Irving, nobody read John Irving's first three books, um, but he was able to keep going because Random House you know, believed him him and what you're seeing now is that not only do they have to think the book's going to be big but they want to already have a movie deal if they can before it's even before it's even published that said the saving grace is um they're terrible at picking and every year there's four or five books that come out of nowhere uh there's the books that they make where they's like okay we're gonna you know make sure every bookstore has this in the front window we're going to spend $100,000 on it. Uh, And those books do well, but there's always half a dozen books each year. Um, Books that you would, I mean, books that have become common in the culture, like Angela's Ashes or uh, The Secret Life of Bees or The Kite Runner. Those are all books that really did nothing in hardcover. Um, And paperback book groups started to read them and then word of mouth started to go and they built and they built and they they built. So, so I think that's hopeful for, for authors is that they don't get the marketing. The marketing is going to fewer and fewer titles, and I think that's going to continue. But um, there is still that avenue out there for, um, for someone to make it big. That's what worries me about the indie books is um, if you listen to the podcast, everyone for the last six months have said it's pay to play now. And I hope we see some sort of platform or avenue come along that it's more like the early days of Kindle where people who don't have those means can still get their words out there, whether it's Wattpad or whether it's something that we don't know yet. But um, the internet is the wild west and I think there will be something. But right now I feel like the future is, is tough for indies because uh, you've got to make it a business or you've got to go home. All right, man. Well, this is a first. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming back to a guest uh, to tag on to the interview before the first part aired because you and I last spoke in uh, January or February and the, the world is clearly different now. Uh, so I, I wanted to kind of 
do it justice and follow up with you and just see how things are going uh, for you and for River Run and just the business in general. Sure. Yeah. It's uh, January was a, a hundred years ago. Uh, we are fortunately in uh, one of the safer parts of the country in New Hampshire. Uh, the numbers are, are quite low because nobody likes to stand near each other in New Hampshire. Um, and so uh, we did close from mid-March to mid-June uh, and did phone orders, internet orders, curbside pickup. Um, but I know during that time there were bookstores in California where they weren't even allowed to do curbside pickup for, for like six weeks or more. Um, and many of them still still haven't opened. So We've been open since June uh, with a limited number of people in the store at the time. We wiped down all the books. We've got an air filter going all the time. And we're still terrified because if one of my staff, there's only four of us that work here. If one of my staff gets COVID or their family gets COVID, we'll have to close for a few days till we get tested. If I get COVID, the store is done because there's you know nobody who can do what I do because I'm bad at legacy uh, and succession planning, all those things they taught you when I was a manager at Borders about uh, succession planning and all that. But, <laughs> but frankly, there's not enough money. Like I don't pay somebody enough to take over this store if I, if I uh, you know, am unable to do it. So, so it's scary. Uh, and yet we're still better off than all the restaurants. Um, Portsmouth is a town uh, built on restaurants. There's enough restaurant seats for everybody in the town to eat out at the same time. Uh, because people come from Boston and other places up to eat. And that also drives my business. So if the restaurants are all going to close back down, and I, I don't see how they're not, because um, cases keep popping up at restaurants, and then that restaurant has to close for two weeks. And like it's you can only do so much of that before you can't recover. Um, but also, like the barbershop next door to us closed. And on a Saturday morning, that was families with kids who would then come in the store. So how all of that affects uh, booksellers, um, who knows? Uh, some of the bright side has been, I feel like we've actually clawed some market share against Amazon because we've had to spend so much time talking to our customers about ordering online and how they can order online. And, um, and people have been more willing to do it. So... Uh, one of the crazy things I always noticed um, is that you would expect people to be uh, a certain format reader, like, hey, I just read ebooks or, hey, I read paper books. Um, but as uh, short attention span Americans, people make their decision on availability. So people would walk into the store and say, do you have The Great Gatsby? And if I had it, they'd buy the paperback. And if I said, no, can I order it? They'd be like, oh, I'll just download the ebook. Um, but now everything, you know, for this period where everything was happening online, people were realizing that if they did that all the time, their, their indie might not be there, which is something we've been telling them for 10 years, right? Like <laughs> you can't, you, you've got to shop your indie if you want your indie to be there. But the, the pandemic really drove that home for, for customers. And now our challenge is to, to keep that up as fatigue sets in and uh, also money budget sets in like i've been waiting all summer for people to realize they don't have any money to buy books yeah. and so far they haven't realized that <laughs> but uh but they will and the question is will this you know if this how long this goes on uh it'll affect so i'm just one of many booksellers i think i'm super lucky that we are in a place where it's not that bad uh i can't believe what it must be like to be in in new york or seattle or all of california yeah, I, I mean, when we last spoke, you had somewhat of a darker outlook on just independent bookstores in general. Uh, has your, I mean, assuming nobody gets sick, assuming we come out of, of this phase without too much more damage, what's the prognosis look like moving forward? Are, are you more optimistic about it or less optimistic about it? I don't know. I, I really don't. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with politics, which I don't want to get into. But uh, I think uh, not just not just actual policy, but also sort of uh, people's mindset about where we're going and what we're going to you know, spend money on. Uh, I, I think, you know, ask me again in, in January, I guess. But um, the 
Good news is there's been a lot of people paying attention to small businesses and not wanting them to go out of business. The bad news is um, it sounds great that we all got government loans, but we all got government loans. So we've all got 30 or 40 grand added to our debt column that wasn't there before. And it's good terms, but you know, still debt. It, it's still debt. So, um, you know, uh, but you know, for a lot of us, I don't know how other people used it, but I was able to take some, you know, more pressing short-term debt and, and spread it out longer. And that has, that's a great benefit, but it's, it's still there. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. It's gonna be well, thanks, man. I really appreciate you giving us the update. I, I have just one last question for you and, uh, sure. This one's pretty serious, but do you think it's a coincidence that all of this happened, especially in New Hampshire, uh, a few months after J.D. Barker moves there? Have you read The Sixth Wicked Child, the, <laughs> the end of the, the trilogy? Because it ends down the street from my house, which is <laughs> creepy. All right. So... I've got enough to worry about with, with JD bringing serial killers to our, our small New England town. And, uh, and I'm not the neighbor that lives next door to him. If anyone's wondering that, um, you know, question, uh, charging him the lawsuits. But um, one thing, last thing I did want to say that I think uh, would be a good topic for you, for you guys to think about, especially now that career author is sort of blending in, but, I think one of the things that's happened from the pandemic is that the big publishers have figured out that ebooks are important. Uh, and I think it's going to wreak havoc. If it's already wreaking havoc with AMS ads, um, BookBub ads, other things like that. Uh, I think it's, there's going to be avenues that indies have used to get the word out there that are going to suddenly become more expensive. Now that usually means something else pops up, but I don't know what it is yet. It'll be interesting to watch, but I just want to throw that out there as something that I've noticed um, that I think is going to have a huge impact is, is the eBooks have not been a, a big focus for the big six and or big five, however you want to count them. But, uh, but it is, they've now suddenly realized, Hey, ebooks are a thing and and it's really the pandemic i mean their biz their ebook business has just gone through the roof and it's going to affect us all right that was the convo with tom uh fun guy uh in interesting um i was looking forward to meeting him in may when we prior you know prior to having the conversation and that didn't happen because the career author someone had to go virtual uh, but regardless, uh, really, really fun conversation. What would you think? Well, he's, he's got a great store. Um, my daughter is a, a big fan of the typewriters. Um, and, and I got to tell you like that, you know, the fact that he's got that, you know, like I've been in so many bookstores, you know, like all over the country and in other countries, things like that. I've never seen that before. And it's one of those things. I think people in town, when they come to Portsmouth, which is a tourist town, uh, they, they probably remember when they walk away. And, you know, those old typewriters are really awesome. Like I've got an old Royal here in my, my office that my mom found for me at an estate sale. Um, and it, it's inspirational to look at it and to think that people actually wrote books on those things at, at one point. Like we are so freaking spoiled with computers and word processors nowadays. Um, the other thing that he brought up, like the third place you guys were talking about. Um, that's a very difficult thing, I think, for, for bookstore owners to, to figure out. You know, I, Barnes & Noble, I think, went overboard. Um, because I know a lot of people that will go into Barnes and Noble, grab a cup of coffee, grab a book off the shelf, read that book while they're there and put it back on the shelf when they leave. That is obviously not the dynamic that Barnes and Noble was shooting for. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's where they're at. Um, being just a bookstore or just a coffee shop, you know, you can survive obviously as both of those, but combined, I think is, is the answer. Um, my, my personal favorite is a concept called Shakespeare and company. And I don't know if we've talked about this before. There's a couple locations. Um, yeah, so they, they've got a small coffee shop inside of a small bookstore, and they also have that Espresso book printing machine that I had mentioned. Too. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they've got all the bestsellers basically available right there. But, you know, there's a catalog of a million other titles that you can print. And within five minutes, they've got a paperback in your hand. Uh, I, I really think that's where this industry is going because it eliminates what, what Tom mentioned. You know, somebody walks in looking for a specific title. You know, he's only got so much square footage. You know, there's a good chance he may or may not have that title. And if he doesn't, they're going to, you know, they're, they're more than likely not going to have him order it because it's so much more easier to either download the ebook um, or, you know, hit up the, the big store that I'm not going to mention and, and have it ship right to your doorstep. 
Um, but that, you know, espresso book printing machine at the store is a game changer because now somebody comes in, they look at the shelf, they don't see the book that they want, they can get it from the machine. So they order it from the machine, probably grab a cup of coffee because they've got to hang out for five minutes. So they're spending money in the store, spending money on that book, and they're walking out with the book that they wanted. So they satisfy all these different things with pretty much the same square footage that Tom's got now. I mean, it doesn't take up a lot of room. I, I think the, the only thing holding that particular machine back right now is still the cost. It's, you know, a hundred some thousand dollars and bookstore owners can't afford that. Um, so somebody has got to step in there and create some kind of leasing program to, to make that happen. It feels like a race. It's a race against yeah. time is what it feels like to me, because I can see when, whenever we come out of the situation that we're in, I feel like people are, are going to want that third place again. And, and I think they're going to want to go back to those bookstores. And, and I think they're going to value them way more than they did before. The question is, you know, can, can the bookstore survive until that happens? Like that's, that's the question mark. Yeah. The whole, the whole world is on a respirator right now. That's what it feels like. We're just, we're all on life support, just trying to get to the end of this thing. Um, but I, I totally understand what you're saying. Like I just had a plumber that came by the house and like, you know, I don't normally leave my house. So like, I didn't want this guy to leave. Like it was somebody to talk to. <laughs> it's like, I, I was glad that he showed up and like, I wanted him to hang out for like an hour or two and just kind of shoot the the crap. And, you know, like, I, I think that's what we're all missing. Um, and it's going to feel very much like we're stepping back out into the sunlight for the first time after, you know, some crazy winter or something and, and hopefully getting our lives back in order. Um, it's, it's fantastic to see that he's surviving. I know there's a lot of other bookstore owners out there that have figured out how to do it too. Um, and I, I really hope everybody's able to pull through this. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about something that he kind of mentioned at the tail end of the, of the catch up conversation, which was this idea that, uh, from where he sits, it looks like the big five or the, the trad publishers in New York have learned in 2020 that eBooks are, are a viable market and they, and they can't ignore them and that they are sort of doubling down on eBooks, which has traditionally been the space of indies. And, and we really haven't had to compete with uh, the traditional publishers um, until now. And uh, it's not a rosy outlook. And I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts or observations on that. Yeah, well, I've seen it play out, you know, kind of in real life because my, my phone you know, like rings with a lot of questions from other authors related to the indie space. Um, because, you know, with me being traditional and indie, a lot of those guys that are 100 percent traditional and have always done it that way. You know, now they're being forced to just evaluate everything. Um, so it started at the beginning of all this. I had a couple of friends that had traditional books that were released at the beginning of the virus or let's say like around March, April. Um, you know, where they basically got the phone call and, you know, they were supposed to be on a tour, but now the tour just got canceled. We're going to go ahead and try and get you on, you know, phone calls instead. With, and, and the publishers were scrambling, trying to figure out what to do in place of what they've always done. Um, and their profit margin has always really been in the print books. Ebooks has always been a secondary thing for them. And that, that's partly why they price them, I think, as high as they do. Um, but, you know, they, they quickly realized that, you know, we're not selling paper copies. And at the beginning of this, in, in around March or so, you know, ebooks were selling through the roof. Um, so they started to, to double down on that. And, you know, we've all seen it, I think, in our advertising costs. If you're in India and you're running Facebook ads, you've seen your prices tick up. That's because the traditional guys are realizing that you need to do that. You know, you need to advertise on Facebook. You need to advertise on Amazon. So they're, they're quickly learning all these different, you know, tips and tricks that indie authors have been doing forever and they're integrating them very fast. The problem is, at least for an indie author, is they've got some pretty sizable bank accounts that we're competing against. And, and I know you've touched on this a couple of times over the last couple of years in different um, episodes and different podcasts. You know, it's it's, it's a pay to play situation and, it, and it's definitely going to continue in that that, you know, that direction. Um, but this is forcing it to happen much faster than it probably would have played out if there was no virus. Um, so we'll have to see. I, I, I don't know where they're going to end up in, in, in the end of this. I, I seriously doubt that they're going to like shift back to print being their number one source. I think they're going to try to find a way to make it a 50-50 thing where print and ebook are kind of you know both doing well. Um, or they may realize, hey, you know, there's a lot more profit in ebook if we do this right. Um, so you may see them starting to adapt some of the other things that they're not willing to do yet. Um, you know, like my traditionally published eBooks right now are still coming out at $14.99. You may see publishers put out the next Stephen King book at $4.99 or are willing to take that down or, you know, put the first in the series for free and or at 99 cents You know, do some of these things that indie authors do as, you know, standard fare. You know, they may start trying and that's going to, you know, it's going to create some waves for sure. Yeah, it's not good news for us, uh, for us indies, for sure. The the one I think the one variable, though, that where there might still be a little bit of hope is I don't I don't 
see the traditional publishers going as deep into the sub niches as the indies do. So you know, I, I would I would think like if you're writing straight up thriller, you're going to be competing with Penguin Random House. But if you're writing like you know werewolf shifter romance, like you, you're probably not going to be competing with their ad budgets at that level, at least for now. I don't know. For now, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to try to figure out how to make their the big money makers work, you know. So like Lee Child's got a new book coming out, and I'm, I'm sure they're really leaning heavily towards, you know, how do we market this, you know, using some of these methods. Um, once they figure that out for their big name authors, the ones that really fill their their kitty every year, um, they're going to start looking at some of those smaller niches. You know, they're going to try to figure out how to get in there. And, and Tom had brought up the the white noise problem. You know, they're, you know, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, I think I think the numbers were 300,000 books were published annually. Um, now we're at about a million books published annually, with 700,000 of those being indie authors. A lot of that is white noise. A lot of it is garbage. You know, a lot of it shouldn't be published, but, you know, it's so easy. Like anybody can literally do it. Um, I, I think the cream is going to rise to the top. Um, and, and I think as an indie author, that's what you've really got to try and do. And that, that's what it, it's always kind of been. Like you, you need to compete, you know, with those guys. You have to put out high quality material if you want to survive. You can only trick people into buying, you know, these books so, so many times, you know, if, if you're getting an average of two and a half stars, you know, you've got a problem. You, you need to be, you know, four and a half, you know, four and a quarter, maybe somewhere around there. Um, if not, you've got to rethink what you're doing because that's what you're going to be competing against in the end. Yep. Couldn't agree more. So it was, uh, it was nice to catch up with Tom. I, I hope, uh, and I'm sure you'll keep us updated on, on the bookstore as, as things progress, but uh, hope, hope to see him weather it and, and stick around. Cause I think he's a good guy and he's uh, got a really unique perspective on both writing and the industry. Yeah, I don't see time going anywhere. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, so, who we got on the on the docket for next week? So next week we've got we've got a woman named Kiefer Brown. Um, she runs Chanticleer Reviews, uh, which is a review service. You know, as an indie author, you can go out there and get your book reviewed by. You know, there's there's certain ones where you can pay for a review, certain ones that will review for free, um, but certain reviews hold a little bit more weight than you know, let's say a blogger review or or something else. So you get Publishers Weekly, you've got Kirkus, you've got uh, Chanticleer. Um, so she runs that, and she also runs the Chanticleer uh, Writers Conference, uh, which takes place just outside of Seattle. So if, if you ever want to go to a writers conference in one of the most beautiful places in the world, or in the country at least, um, definitely check that one out. It's right on the water, incredible location, um, and, and the, the talent that they bring to it every year is, is fantastic. Uh, it's one of my favorite conferences to attend. Nice. Well, that, that'll be fun. I'm already looking forward to it. Yes, sir. All right. Well, uh Everyone, make sure you go to writersingpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.